Hello and welcome to The Raw, your Sunderland Echo SAFC podcast, where we're back again to discuss another busy week at the Stadium of Light and reflect on Sunderland's unbeaten start to the season. I'm joined as ever by our Chief Football Writer, Phil Smith. Morning, Phil. Hello. And we're delighted to be joined by BBC Radio Newcastle's Nick Barnes, who's expecting a very important delivery this morning. Yes, good morning. My neighbours have asked me to keep an eye out for the man with the van who's coming between 11 and 1. So if I disappear suddenly, surreptitiously, or any other manner, uh, it's because I'm going to collect the delivery for them. Shouldn't take long. Oh, too kind of a man, Barnsley. Too kind of a man. We'll start, uh, we'll start with a little bit of a look back at last night. Obviously, Sunderland in the EFL Trophy action against Carlisle United. Phil Parkinson made eight changes, but still named a very, very strong team. And Sunderland ran out. 5-3 winners, which sealed their progression into the knockout stages of the competition. Phil, it's a, a competition that obviously splits opinion and is, isn't the top of Sunderland's priority list this year. But a good win, five goals, and keeps that unbeaten run going. Yeah, I thought it was you know, quite an interesting night in terms of, you know, I've done a piece for, for the Echo later today looking at, you know, I remember after that Aston Villa game, sort of when the team sheets dropped at Bristol Rovers a few days later, there was a lot of disappointment because, you know, Josh Scowan hadn't forced his way into the team. And But I was actually kind of thinking about that and how significant that night actually turned out to be because, you know, when George Dobson got suspended a week later, for example, you know, Grant's performance against Aston Villa put him at the forefront of Phil Parkinson's mind when that spot did come up. So even though it wasn't immediately significant, it actually proved to have some significance. And I was kind of thinking about that this morning when I was thinking about last night's game because it wasn't a perfect performance. I thought Sunderland were pretty sloppy at times during the game. I thought they were poor to begin with. Um, obviously, when they went 4-1 up, they gave away two very, very soft goals, which you could tell Parkinson, Phil Parkinson was very frustrated by. But there were just a few things that I thought were, were notable and, and you know that won't fundamentally change the way Parkinson sets his team up and they won't change the team for Swindon, I don't think. But just a few interesting things I thought that you know, I thought Dan Neal, although he did tire in the second half, undoubtedly, I thought he showed he could be trusted. Um, you know, the poise he played with, a little bit of physicality as well, which is good to see from an 18-year-old. Um, he doesn't he doesn't get pushed off the ball very easily or anything like that. So if you do have an injury in this hectic schedule we know coming up, he's shown he can be trusted to be on the bench or to play a part. I thought Jack Diamond, while he's very raw defensively, I don't think there's any doubt about that, I think he showed again he's got something different. And I just thought in my mind's eye, a game like that Bristol Rovers game where you're playing against a deep line defence and you need a goal late on. What an interesting option it is to bring Diamond on who can sort of, you know, he just commits fouls. He get, he, he, sorry, he forces defenders to commit fouls. You know, the, he, um, the, you know his, his dribbling is fantastic. And I just think maybe late on in the game, I think Parkinson will be looking at that and thinking, you know, that's a real option. Something completely different who could maybe win me a penalty or win me a free kick or go past the player. Um, and then, you know, finally, we don't expect to see Luke O'Neill at centre-back very often, but he was actually so good on the left of defence, which I don't think he'll ever play again in his career. But in this current system, you kind of think, well, let's say you're playing at home um, against a team lowering the table and you need a goal late on and you want to make an attacking sub. You could easily drop Luke O'Neill to right centre-back and bring Jack Diamond on so you can essentially play him as an extra winger. So I thought it was an interesting night just because there were these little things that it isn't going to change the team for Swindon and probably not the game after that just a few things that I think Parkinson will take away in the same way from that first Aston Villa game. I think Grand Letter's display really changed things for him in his, in his own mind as well. And Nick, who caught your eye? Because as Phil says, there were some quite interesting, if nothing else, performances 
squad. Well, it's interesting, Phil, talking about Luke O'Neill not ever playing left centre-back ever again in his career. I'm just thinking about the Swindon game and the Flanagan suspension and how they're going to cope with that. And Luke played so well there against um, Carlisle. I'm, I'm sort of, it's at the back of my mind that with Jamadjli um, and Feeney injured, Jamadjli untried really at League One level, I wouldn't be at all surprised if Luke O'Neill played left centre-back at Swindon and Jack Diamond played right wing-back because I thought he did, as Phil said. I thought he was industrious. I thought he kept going. He's got a motor on him. He draws, as Phil says, defenders onto him. Um, and the way that Phil Parkinson was praising Luke O'Neill's performance against Carlisle made me think, well, if, he's, if, if he really trusts him to play there and he did so well, maybe that will sort of solve his dilemma in that position. And adding to that, right at the end of the game, I don't know if you noticed, but Jordan Willis was chatting pitch side to one of the Carlisle players he knows. But when he went to go back down the tunnel, he clearly had a problem with his left knee. He was walking stiffly with a slight limp. And I know Phil Parkinson alluded to the fact that Jordan may have missed out against Carlisle, but he was on the bench because of this knee problem. Um, if they don't solve that in the next 10 days, they may well have an, you know, two issues. So I can see a position where Conor McLaughlin comes back. If Willis has got a problem, he can slot in either at right wing back or right side of the three. And Luke O'Neill can play on the left side of the three. But it's just a thought. But um, overall, in the game, I, I agree with Phil. I thought there were some sloppy moments. There were some times when the ball was given away cheaply. Um, those two soft goals when they were 4-1 up. That's clearly, they took their eye off the ball and thought the game was won. Uh, and credit to Carlisle for fighting back. I think, um, I thought actually when Carlisle played Sunderland pre-season, the 3-1 defeat, that scoreline flattered Carlisle, uh, flattered Sunderland. I think Carlisle offered quite a lot that day. And I think they offered quite a lot in the, uh, the trophy as well. Um, you know, 5-3 perhaps is a bit harsh on them. But... You know, overall, it was an entertaining game. It was an enjoyable game. Um, and it was fairly open. And, and I think, you know, Dan Neal's another player. He's industrious. He didn't pull up trees for me, but I thought he went, you know, he kept going. Um, and he did what he was asked to do. Uh, and, and Maguire, again, you know, we saw that the, the, you know, the better Maguire and see what he, he can offer. Um, so there was a sort of hodgepodge of good and bad, if you like, but with a couple of question marks going into the Swindon game. One player who maybe struggled a, a little bit was Remy Matthews. You know, obviously came out for the penalty and fouled Ethan Walker. Probably look back on the second Carlisle goal, John Mellish's first, and feel he could have done a little bit better. Phil, what was your take on his performance? Because it's the first time we've really probably seen Remy Matthews tested because in that Aston Villa game, he was, other than the penalty Villa got, pretty much a spectator. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one, isn't it? The, se the second goal I was a bit unsure about, just because of how we're, we're so high up in the Premier Concourse that you don't always get the best view of things. And I couldn't work out to what extent Matthews was kind of unsighted by the crowd of bodies in front of him. But I think watching it back, ordinarily you would expect a goalkeeper to save that, I think. Um, you know, Mellish didn't get a huge amount of power on it. Certainly not in comparison to his third goal, by the way, which was an um, absolutely tremendous strike, um, which Matthews had no chance for. So... 
yeah, my 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 instinct at the time was that that was that he would have expected to save that. But like I say, you would really need to see a kind of Sky Sports angle, really, from behind the goal to to make a full judgment on that. And the first one, you have to say, there was a bit of an inevitability about that. I think as soon as Matthews came off his line, I think it was pretty obvious that his timing wasn't there and that Walker was going to get to the ball. I think there was almost like a a 15-second period, really, where you were kind of just waiting for the penalty, and that was exactly what happened. Um, I don't think it's easy for a goalkeeper playing kind of like once a month and then sort of disappearing again. Um, but I think Matthews will be disappointed because I think he'll know that even though he has had much football, the opportunities he has had, um, he maybe hasn't fully seized. And, you know, Lee Burge has not really been tested in the league games, but that means he's keeping clean sheets. And, you know, you have to do something special to remove a goalkeeper who's keeping clean sheets. So I think there's obviously a few positions on the pitch where we've come away with some questions about last night and we've wondered who might get the nod for that Swindon game. But I think it's pretty clear for, for the time being that, you know, Lee Burge is very much the... And another another area that was of interest was on that left flank where we've seen all summer, you know, Sunderland have been in the hunt for a, a left-sided defender to, to challenge Denver Hume. But Hume, again, very, very impressive yesterday. Got his goal, despite a little bit of confusion, I think, in the press box over who had got that uh, final touch after There's that. No confusion. It's the only person confused was me and Benno. It's <laughs> interesting that Benno didn't back me up at all. He confirmed when I said power, he said it was power. Thanks, Benno. But Denver Hume, Nick's been very, very good. Was this that not Max Power playing left wing back? <laughs> I know. Well, we have called on Max Power to get a haircut off the back of that, haven't you? Or, or Denver Hume, one of the two, because they do look, as Phil said, from the Premier Concourse, it's sometimes hard to uh, decipher these things. But it was Denver Hume who swept the ball home for that setting. And we've seen him in, in the first seven games of the season popping up in the box quite a bit. And he's becoming a real attacking outlet for Sunderland now. It's an interesting one because Marco Gabbiadini's been quite vocal on um, Total Sport these last couple of weeks about Denver Hume. He's been very frustrated by his final ball. And I think, uh, to a certain extent, Benno's been frustrated by that as well. But I think that overall this season, Denver Hume's arguably the sort of most improved player in the, in the squad because he's certainly come on leaps and bounds physically. I mean, you and I spoke to him after the game last night and one of the questions I did ask him was what area of the game does he still think he can improve which is probably a little bit of an unfair question to ask of a player but I felt he'd offered the fact that when we talked about his um, work on his physical side of the game over the summer and the fact he does look a little bit more um, aggressive inverted commas this season I thought it was fair to ask him does he does he feel there are areas that he still needs to improve and to his credit he said, yes, you know, he's learning all the time. He's, you know, picked up a lot in coaching already this season. And I think you can see that. I think what he's, you know, he's, I think last night, again, some of his, when he got back to um, sort of slide in and knock the ball into touch from on a couple of occasions, his timing was perfect. I mean, you know, there was some very, it's a very difficult manoeuvre to, to come back and effectively tackle from behind on the side. And, do it cleanly, especially around the edge of the penalty area. But I thought he did that well last night. And I think, you know, he's, he's adventurous. He loves to get forwards. He likes to get into the penalty area. He, he's certainly got the ability to take the ball down to the byline and cut it back, bring it back into the box. Where it's still frustrating is sometimes that final ball, when he does that, when he's done all that good work, gets into the penalty area. It's someone, and I, th I can understand Marco's frustration. He pulls the ball back behind 
the, the strikers and, and not offering them the chance to, to, you know, not putting it in front of them or in the, in the six yard box. But overall, I think Hume, um, you know, week in, week out, I mean, he, he has made that position at the moment his. Um, and if he keeps going on in this vein, I think it'd be very difficult to dislodge him, whoever may come in in that position. Well, we know the EFL trophy is not Sunderland's priority this season, but there's obvious financial rewards to progression and obviously the, the kind of dangling carrot of Wembley at the end. And where, how do you think Phil Parkinson's going to treat this competition now they are into the knockout stages? Because he's obviously rotated his squad you know, within, within the EFL trophy rules, which are now quite lenient. But he's still been naming fairly strong teams for these games. Yeah, well, I, I, th- I think at the moment it's not a huge issue. Um, and we have seen this actually in the past two seasons, to be honest, in that Sunderland have a big enough squad that when these games come around, they have players who need minutes. Um, and so you're able to rotate pretty heavily and still name a relatively strong side. And I mean, you know, you haven't got another AFL trophy game for a month now. I think October, uh, November the 6th, the next one away at Fleetwood. Sunderland have already qualified. So I would imagine he'll probably do something similar to what Jack Ross did at Morecambe a couple of years ago and essentially just name an academy side for that team. Maybe just with one or two players who need some minutes. It's a total free hit. Good experience for them. Doesn't tire out your more established players. So that game shouldn't be a hurdle. Um, and then you're in the knockout stages and you can just keep you can just keep that kind of philosophy going of just blending, you know, Dan Neal and Jack Diamond players like that with with play, senior players who need minutes. So while it's not a priority, um, I don't think it's a major issue for Sunderland at the moment. You know, these first two games have come at good times in terms of getting minutes for players who need it. Um, that Fleetwood game isn't going to be a huge issue because, like I say, you can basically pick whatever team you, you, you like now that you're through. So it's not a priority, but as we saw in that, kind of 2018-19 season, if the games keep coming along at, at OK moments, then you can still put out strong sides without really threatening. Um, you know, I know a lot of people say that the Czech Trade Trophy run ended up really really hurting Sunderland in 2018-19. I think that was slightly exceptional circumstances because you had the Newcastle game where Jack Ross had to pick a really strong side because it was Newcastle United, even if it was you know, only their academy. Um, theoretically, I think you should be able to have a good run at the tournament um, without putting your senior players in jeopardy. And so long as you can do that, then just take each game as it comes and every every win you get a bonus and maybe there will be that carrot at the end. If at some point along the way you're having a bit of an injury crisis, you get a game at a bad moment and you can't put out a strong side and you lose, then nobody's going to quibble too much. It's not going to be a major issue. So I think at the moment it's, it's not a, a tournament I'm particularly worried about, especially not getting knocked out of the Carabao Cup so early as well, by the way. In previous seasons, Sunderland have normally... Certainly last year, they had a couple of big wins, which just added to that congestion. You haven't got that this year. So at the moment, I'm not too concerned about that side of things. Um, I think it should be fairly manageable. And if it comes a point where it's not particularly manageable, well, no harm done. You know, if, if you do exit the competition some stage because you can't put the wrong side out, then so be it. Nick, that made it seven unbeaten for Sunderland. That's, I think, four wins and three draws, if I'm correct, in, in competitive fixtures. What have you made of Sunderland's start of the season? Because although it's not been... Dazzling throughout, there have been some good moments, some good performances in, in spells. And to be unbeaten at this stage of the season, particularly with some of the opposition Sunderland have played, is no bad thing. Yeah, interesting. I just before I answer that directly, just going on the back of what Phil said about the trophy, um, I think there's two aspects to the trophy this season. One is echoing um, what Charlie Methven banged on about at the first season, about how much it was financially 
valuable to Sunderland because they could make about a million get into the final. Now, clearly those figures are not going to come into play this time around because with the best will in the world, when they do get spectators back in, um, I suspect when the final's played, it will not be to a capacity Wembley. You won't get the same numbers. But that said, the trophy, unlike the League Cup, offers you a financial reward in every round. If you get through the group stage, I think it's worth, what, £30,000? Um, and that, at the moment, £30,000 in the current climate is a significant amount of money for a football club when there's no nobody coming through the turnstiles. So I think in that respect, it's got a little bit more importance now than, you know, arguably it had even um, last season. The other point I'd make is that I think while you're winning in the competition, you, you, you know, you just keep going. You just, um, it's important until you're knocked out of it. If they get knocked out, I don't think they're going to lose any sleep over it. But at the moment, you know, it's the one competition where they're scoring goals, 13 goals in two games, albeit, you know, you're playing against lower league opposition and an academy team. But I just think, you know, in that sense, he can he can rotate the squad. He can give people the opportunities because he's got the numbers to be able to do it. And you just keep going until you're, you're knocked out. And if you end up in the final, well, so be it. Um, I think, you know, I agree with Phil. I think there were mitigating circumstances when they reached the final the last time round. Um, this time round, I think Phil Parkinson seems to be managing it very well and in terms of that question you asked me about the start of the season I think it's been fairly solid I my only concern still is the lack of goals in the league um while they're keeping clean sheets that's you know great but the number of chances they've created in a few of those games they should have been out of sight in a couple of them um going back to the weekend at Charlton again should have been a game they had wrapped up at half time and you know while they're still in the in the chase in the top six, it's it's sort of um, a slight concern to me that uh, the, that rotational um, system that Phil Parkinson seems to be using at the moment is not actually coming up with a result. I'd, I'd rather have seen someone like Grigg start the season and have four or five games just so he can build some sort of confidence and build some self-belief. But I think at the moment with just changing the striker every game is not actually conducive them to scoring goals but um fingers crossed you know that that may change in in the next few weeks but i you know you can't when you look at where they are on the table and and the, the record so far you you've got to say it's a it's a it's a solid start phil on that striker situation obviously we have seen phil Parkinson kind of rotate his front line to to deal with the opposition that he's playing but do you think it's a little bit of a a concern at this point that nobody has kind of got that run of goal scoring, gone in, put their hand up and said, yes, I'm going to be the number nine. I'm going to be the man who's going to get 20 goals a season. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think there's probably a couple of points I would make on that. I mean, I think first and foremost, your four league goals isn't a great return generally. It's certainly not a great return in terms of, in comparison to Sunderland's attacking output, which is actually pretty good. Touches in the box, shots, crosses. They're, they're doing so well on all these statistics that four goals is very bizarre. Um, bizarrely small number to have produced from that and so it's obviously a concern I think part of it is the nature of the system whereby the vast majority of the shooting opportunities come to the attacking midfielders or the second strike if you like in Aidan O'Brien or Chris Maguire or Lyndon Gooch even Max Power the statistics kind of point that out that most of the shots are coming from those 
almost you know second attackers rather than the centre forward. I think it is definitely a concern. Um, but I do think the one thing I would say is that while I, I totally agree with Nick and I, I said kind of regularly that I felt you know that Will Grigg deserved a proper opportunity at the start of the season, I do also think that for all Parkinson's talked up rotation. Um, and you know, I think he's quite honestly done so. I have also felt pretty much from the moment he came to the club that he was eyeing Danny Graham as kind of his main striker. And I think the only reason he hasn't played more has just been a match fitness issue. Um, and I do think that come the other side of the international break, we might start to see Danny Graham, if not playing 90 minutes every week, because he will have to rotate clearly. Um, I do think Graham will be the striker who gets the most minutes. And the question will be whether he can he, he can turn that into goals. Because I think what we have seen from this first kind of seven-game stretch, I think we've all seen enough to know that Sunderland are going to be there or thereabouts. You can see that there's a resilience about them. There's a bit of quality about them. Defensively, there's an excellent structure about them. At this point, you kind of look at the performances so far and say this is definitely a top-six side without any shadow of a doubt. It's not going to be a kind of a terrible season or anything like that. The question is whether there's quite enough to be a top-two side. And I suppose the goal scoring question is kind of right at the heart of that. And obviously, before we return to League One action on October the 17th, we're going to see the domestic transfer window close on, on the Friday before October the 16th. Sunderland's last chance to add to their squad a couple of positions they still want to look at. Phil, you asked Phil Partington about transfer business last night, especially Robbie Gotts, the Leeds United midfielder who was linked with uh, Sunderland in recent days and he was, although he was a little bit coy on that name in particular he, he certainly indicated that Sunderland are still looking to, to bring in players in this last well less than a fortnight now Yeah I think um, I think with Robbie Gotts you know he's obviously a player Sunderland have asked about you know Partinson certainly didn't reel the link out but he just kind of alluded to the fact that he does have players in that position I did wonder if maybe that was an interest that was sparked before Grant Ledbetter made such an excellent recovery, um, excellent return to the team, and before Dan Neal kind of emerged as a very viable first-team option. Because I think without those two players at the start of the summer, you were probably thinking some under a central midfielder light. At this moment in time, I'm not convinced they necessarily need another central midfielder. So that would be a surprise, although I guess we'll wait and see. Um, I think it's very much a question of left-back's the obvious one. Um, yes, you've got Luke O'Neill who can play there. Yes, you've got Lyndon Gucci who can play there. But Denver Hume has become such an important part of this team, as we've discussed. And his attacking quality has become such a central part of Sunderland's side that you know you need somebody who can replicate that to a certain extent if he was to suffer an injury. So I still think that's the one that they'll, that they'll do. Um, and I think there's a chance he'll get a centre-back as well. Because although, obviously, we talked about Luke O'Neill giving him a very welcome kind of alternative option in that position, he still wants a proper understudy to Bailey Wright because that position, I think, at the heart of defence is a slightly different one because that's where you kind of need your general, that's where you need, need your leader, almost your very orthodox defender who can deal with the opposition striker. Um, I don't think that's a position where you'd want to throw in somebody like Luke O'Neill, for example. So I still think, um, even if it is a young option like Morgan Feeney, someone of that ilk, I, I still suspect that he might well do some business in that position as well. Nick, there's been a lot of Sunderland fans talking about potentially bringing in an additional forward as well. Is that something you can see Phil Partington potentially doing? Uh, it's got to be on his mind. I think if you're going to be thinking about getting out of League One this season and you're trying to tick off every option and you're making sure you're covering your back, I, I, if I was Phil Parkinson, 
But if I was the manager, I would certainly, at the back of my mind, be thinking, look, what what if it doesn't happen with Graham, Wyke, um, etc., and and Greg, then do do you have some sort of contingency to you know, at least give yourself a chance? And I, I I I wouldn't be at all surprised if they are looking whether they seriously think right we can afford it or we can bring someone in. Um, bearing in mind the restrictions of the salary cap and everything else, I mean I think. The salary cap issue is going to be an issue because they probably aren't going to be looking at a young sort of untried and untested player you want someone you, you can bring in and may actually guarantee you as far as you can guarantee anything um some goals but I, at the moment it's it, it's it's sort of gnawing away at me I, I'm, I'm i'm trying to sit and be sanguine about the fact that you know the three aren't getting goals at the moment and trusting that you know when Phil Parkinson says oh well they will come good they're good players they're good players that he's right but I'd hate to get the other side of October the 16th and in four weeks time we're still looking at you know three strikers who are just not on fire um, so I, I, I suspect it's something that they are considering I mean I as I say I would and if um I think if ever's in that position, it's something you just you just want to cover yourself. You want to cover your back. Um, I mean, you, you, I'd, I'd hate to get to the end of the season and we all start talking about, well, we we failed, Sunderland failed by whatever number of points because they didn't bring in a striker. When we, you know, we look back to when Madger left that January and and it, it keeps coming back. Madger going costs Sunderland promotion and that I think underlines just how important it is to get someone who can score goals and away from transfers Phil I know you've written a piece for the Echo website today on obviously contract decisions and there's a number of players whose contracts currently set to expire next summer the likes of Denver Hume Jordan Willis Jack Diamond players that Sunderland would see as assets and you would imagine would probably want to tie down yeah, it's an interesting one, and that's kind of why I, I wrote the piece. And hopefully, people don't see it as kind of maybe negative or anything like that when the start of the season's been pretty good. But it's just something that kind of interests me because the first thing I would say, and I would mention, I have mentioned in the piece as well, is that we don't know exactly what the situation is with these contracts. Obviously, last year there was this kind of thing where we thought and suspected, and we were kind of hearing that Luke Online had this autom- this option of an extension in the club's favour. It was never confirmed and it turned out it did. Maybe Jordan Willis and Denver Hume, for example, also have these options that protect the club. We don't know that. But I think it's fair at this point to, to ask the question because you know, Denver and Jordan are not only very important players in the team, but they're also players with resale value. And this is why it kind of interests me because you know, we saw a lot of upheaval at the club in the summer. We saw some key positions change, some people in key positions leave. And one of the things we've heard a lot about since is the sustainability of the football club, creating value in the team. Um, and to do that, you need to have your best young players. Um, Jordan Willis is, is not a young player anymore, but he's approaching his peak age for centre-back. You need these players on contracts where you're protected. And if you, they do decide to leave, you can bring in money to reinvest. And I just think it's an interesting one. And there's two kind of questions in my head is that, you know, one is the financial capacity there to do it under the salary cap rules, as we all know. Denver Hume, Jordan Willis, Luke O'Nine are currently counted by the League One average. I think if they were to get a new contract, we can all assume we'd be earning a lot more than that. And that's obviously what would count towards the cap then at the point they sign the new deal. And the second question is obviously this kind of ongoing takeover uncertainty, which 
And the reason why I've written the piece is because I feel like this is kind of, you know, Groundhog Day where we say, well, we'll wait and see what happens with these takeover talks. We'll wait and see where we are at the next transfer window because it's always this kind of, let's wait and see. And, you know, we've seen John McLaughlin and Josh Madger leave the club for a fraction of their actual value because of, you know, an inability to kind of get on top of that contract situation. So I just thought at this point, especially when Willis and Human 09 are playing so well, to just kind of raise that question because I, I'm interested to see whether the club are in a position where they can do that or not, or at least whether they have some protection there. Um, you know, I, I think it's an interesting question and hopefully not just me being a mourner or being negative. It's tough, isn't it, Nicky, in all aspects of the club when there is this kind of uncertainty over the future ownership. It is tough to to plan behind the scenes, but credit needs to go to, to Phil Parkinson, who's obviously no stranger to working in difficult situations after his time at Bolton because he's just ploughed on with the job and, and kept getting results. I think that experience at Bolton is, is, is sort of very relevant. I think it's very much holding him in good stead here. I think it's, you know, I think when you, you look at Parkinson's character, um, he's quite stoical in, in, in many ways. I mean, yes, he, he might be conservative with a small C when it comes to, you know, the way he sets his teams up and his sort of um, his rigidity, if you like, in, in sticking to that formation or that sort of team and the way he uh, addresses game management but at the same time uh, he's very resilient and that resilience has got to have come from the experience he had at Bolton um, which was just torrid I mean it's when you you think back to what everything was happening at Bolton Wanderers at the time it's extraordinary how he he stayed as long as he did actually and 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 even managed to you know conjure up some of the results that they did, bearing in mind the club was basically just disintegrating around him. Um, so I think that must must really, I think very much sort of that fortitude that he's got as a result of the Bolton experience um, at the moment is very, very important. Um, I think it's, you know, it, it's it's key. I think with all the, you know, the uncertainty over the takeover, I think it's absolutely key that everybody focuses on what happens on the pitch now because this season is so important. I think, you know, the, the, I know we said after the first season, the prospect of a second season in League One is unthinkable. The prospect of a third season in League One is even more unthinkable. But the prospect of a fourth season in League One is becoming um, dreadful. Uh, to, to, and, that's, you know, and that's an understatement, I think, with the, the current sort of economic climate, the current climate surrounding football, the fourth season in League One could potentially be absolutely disastrous. And yeah, that's the the big thing for Sunderland. Obviously, getting promotion onto Swindon in in a couple of weeks, and I mean they've they've started quite well, haven't they, Phil? And that will be no easy game for Sunderland. Yeah, I think um, I've not seen a huge amount of Swindon, but just looking at what they've done over a, um, a period of time, it's obvious that they're a very good attacking side. And Richie Wellens has coached them really well in the attacking side of the game. And I think the thing that really underlines that is the fact that they lost pretty much their entire front line from last season in Owen Doyle. Um, Jerry Yates was there, wasn't he? Um, and yet they're still have stepped up a level, lost these key attacking players, and they're still giving teams a fright going forward. So they're obviously very, very well coached in terms of their attacking play. Um, by all accounts, they gave Peterborough a real fright on Saturday. I know Peterborough won 3-1, but it sounds like Swindon should have been, um, had a much better lead than their 1-0 lead at, at half-time. So I mean, look, it's one of those where, you know, we can talk opposition teams up. If Sunderland want to be a top two side, they've got to make a habit of getting results from these games. And I'm sure Phil Parkinson will say exactly that. He never tries to take the pressure off his players, to be fair. It'll 
Um, but it, it should be a good contest because, like I say, you know, Swindon um, are obviously a side who will have a go, especially at home. It doesn't sound at all like there'll be a team who just sit in and kind of hope for the best. So it'll be a good contest and it will be interesting to see how Swindon stand up to it because one of the things that interests me about Parkinson's team is in the first year we were in League One when Jack Ross was in charge and obviously the recruitment of the centre-halves didn't go particularly well. I think I always felt that the way to get Sunderland was to go very, very direct, very early, be really aggressive with your long balls. Um, now with Bailey Wright and Tom Flanagan and Jordan Willis, that's clearly not the way to go. But I do think you can get at them with a bit of pace and a bit of movement. We've seen that from Brandon Hanlon. Um, we saw it a little bit from Sir Ricky Dembele and we actually saw it from young Ethan Walker last night, the lad on loan from Preston before before he got injured. So it'll be interesting to see in the, in the coming weeks whether opposition managers kind of look at that and, and realise they have to change their approach a little bit from the way you would have played against Sunderland 18 months ago, which probably would have been to go back to front pretty quickly and try and get in their faces um, to realise that now probably pace and a little bit of movement and dribbling ability is probably key. So yeah, it'll be a, it, sh- it should be a good game because hopefully Swindon will have a go and that'll allow Sunderland to kind of play themselves a little bit and, and hopefully it'll make a good contest. Brilliant. And on that note, we'll call it a day for this week's edition of The Roar and let Nick get prepped and primed and ready to collect his neighbour's Amazon delivery. That's amazing. That's, that's, what about timing? No no sign of it yet. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, well, hopefully they're Probably around. missed it, actually. <laughs> Thank you both as ever for your time. And we'll have all the, the build-up to Sunderland's game at Sunderland Town on sunlandecho.com with all the latest transfer news before that October 16th deadline as well. Thank you for listening to The Raw. Please do like, subscribe and rate. And we hope to see you back here soon.